Affordability and supply are closely linked. There continues to be a significant shortage of affordable housing across the country, and rents have been consistently increasing at the highest pace on record. But affordability and rising rents aren't the whole story. Neighborhood accessibility is another important factor. So many places in the country that renters may want to live just don't have rental housing available. And so is general cost of living beyond rent. Yeah, that's right. And there's certainly a lot of attention on that right now. So uh, today on the show, we're going to look into the intersection of affordability, supply, neighborhood accessibility, and cost of living, and how these factors are affecting renters. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. The confluence of affordability, supply, accessibility, and the cost of living is complex. So today, we're excited to welcome back to the podcast someone who has been researching all of these topics, Whitney Ergodobricki. Whitney is a senior research associate at the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University. She's the project manager and lead author of the Joint Center's biennial report, America's Rental Housing, along with a lot of other great related research. Thanks for joining us today, Whitney. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. We've seen an incredible increase in demand for rental housing recently, and supply is not keeping up. As economists, that's often where we start. What are you seeing there, and how does that set the stage for a deeper look? So the big thing we've seen lately is that starts, especially for multifamily, for rent, are way up. Um, I think we posted an annual rate of about 500,000 units as of the first quarter this year, which is one of the highest levels on record since the 1980s. Um, We're also seeing an increase in single family built for rent, and that's uh, still a small share of starts for rent, but it's rising. So we are seeing quite a bit of supply. But during the pandemic, there was just this incredible surge in demand. Uh, If you look at RealPage data, for instance, they show a a peak of 700,000 net new occupied units um, and, and vacancy rates then hitting record lows as well. And we're starting to see demand moderating a little bit, but still really strong. Um, we, with interest rates cooling home buying a little bit, we expect to see demand you know, remain fairly strong. So we have this environment where supply has been, has been coming online and should theoretically help the affordability issue, but also just a, a surge in demand and, and people who are facing affordability challenges before continuing to face deep affordability challenges. So just sticking on that supply uh, front for a second, with all the, the new supply that's coming on, right, how affordable are you seeing that supply? A lot of the supply that's being built right now is at the higher end, and part of that is because construction inputs have gone up quite a bit. Um, so we've seen an increase in cost of labor, for instance, as we've had labor shortages in the construction industry. We've seen the cost of materials, the cost of land, all of that increasing um, in recent years. So a lot of the new construction is at the higher end, and without some sort of subsidy, it's really hard for developers to build at affordable price points for those who need it the most. You seeing that in the uh, the build to rent space as well? I haven't seen a lot of data on the build to rent space, but a lot of the um, construction inputs are all the same, whether it's you know large multifamily or or single family rentals. So certainly, the the cost of inputs are are, are really expensive, and that's leading to a kind of development. I think also um, in some of your recent work, you've looked at uh, where where things are located and how that affects things as well. Um, Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, we're seeing a lot of permitting right now in uh, core areas of major metropolitan areas where land is more expensive. We're also seeing construction that's um, being built with more amenities and larger buildings that can take longer to build. So the construction timelines are longer. Um, and because of where we're building, things are just more expensive. Uh, and I think this sort of feeds into uh, this blog that we wrote recently about rental deserts and how a lot of uh, our, our rental housing is concentrated in certain neighborhoods. And then there's a real unevenness of the rental housing stock across our metropolitan areas that shapes where people can live. So that really gets to, you know, it's one side of it is right where we are building. The other side is definitely where we're not building, right? So even in those areas that you've seen historically, uh, not a lot of rental housing, are you seeing any change in that? Is is more maybe getting built in those areas or it's still, you, that rent desert is persisting? We suspect that there are fewer rental deserts now than there were maybe you know 10 or 15 years ago because of the expansion of single family rentals with tenure conversions, especially after the foreclosure crisis. But we haven't looked at this longitudinally yet. That's on our list of things to do. So we, uh, in this most recent blog, looked at a snapshot of currently um, what neighborhoods are rental deserts. And it's largely what you would expect. It's in suburban areas where there is uh, sort of a politics, a a NIMBY politic, um, and an opposition to new construction that prevents housing from being built there. And I think it's interesting that as you look at this, you're maybe a little bit of details. And uh, I know that you're always doing extremely detailed work. And certainly we hear these stories as it relates to multifamily, but uh, maybe you can give us some background on, it sounds like you're covering multifamily and single family data uh, in terms of rentals here. And, and that it still persists across the, the whole universe. Is that right? Yeah, when we're looking at rental deserts, we're looking at neighborhoods where less than 20% of the housing is either renter-occupied or vacant for rent, and we include single-family renters or rentals or multifamily rentals in that. So any any rental is a rental in our universe. Um, And even considering single-family rentals, um, we find that about a third of neighborhoods nationwide are rental deserts, where there's just a really low share of the stock available for rent. Right. And so uh, that's so certainly that makes it so people who are choosing to be rental are, are not able to get into those places generally, whether it's single family or multifamily rental. These tend to be probably areas where they, they may find it desirable to be um, if that were not the case. Is that true or how would you measure what would be the impact to those folks? I think one of the ways that we think about it is if there aren't options to rent in certain neighborhoods, then you're effectively excluding people who are renters. And because of access to homeownership and disparities that exist in access to homeownership, you're effectively excluding lower income households who have trouble saving for a down payment, who have trouble being approved for a mortgage. And you're also effectively excluding people of color. And because we have systematically denied homeownership opportunities, denied employment and educational opportunities to people of color, um, you know, at at an equal rate of as, as people who are white, um, people of color have higher rentership rates and are more likely to be renters. And so if you have neighborhoods that you just don't build rental housing in, you have no rental housing, you're effectively excluding people of color. And we see that when we look at statistics comparing rental deserts with high rental neighborhoods. We find that people of color and lower income households are, are heading households in those high rental neighborhoods at much greater rates 
And so you're creating these spatial disparities then because of who renters are. So just looking at the rental deserts, among what you're seeing in those markets, help us understand what that looks like. Is it more multifamily or more single family rental? What does the affordability look like? So what, what are your initial observations there? We haven't looked specifically at the rental stock in these neighborhoods, but what we do see is that rental desert communities have overwhelmingly large shares of single family homes in general. So for instance, 85% of the stock in rental desert communities are single family homes compared to just 17% in high rental neighborhoods. Um, and so when we think about you know, how units could be converted to rentals um, is possible in rental deserts with single family homes converting tenure. But the lack of multifamily housing is likely a big factor in what limits opportunities for renters and especially what limits some more affordable options since single family rentals do tend to have higher rents in general. As you say, with those higher rents, as we talk about the households and uh, and how they're impacted, I think that we often think of, you know, if uh, if they're paying their housing and uh, and those are coming at higher costs, then, then other things get squeezed. Um, do, do you see that in some of your work? Yeah, we wrote a paper. Um, it's called Rent Eats First after Matthew Desmond's um, you know, concept that people are paying their rent first. That's the most important bill that comes every month that you need for stability in your life. Um, and in that paper, we were looking at residual income burdens, which is a different way to conceptualize housing affordability that considers all of the other expenses that households need to meet. Um, and so what we were finding with that is uh, we were trying to see how many households don't have enough income to meet a basic but comfortable standard of living after paying rent and utilities. And the implication here that we've shown in some of our reports before is that if people are paying more for housing, they're usually cutting back on other vital expenses like food and healthcare even retirement savings, things that have all these downstream effects. So in that paper, we were looking at um, working age renter households specifically and finding that nearly two thirds couldn't afford a basic standard of living, which amounted to over 19 million households. Do you see sort of a, a compounding effect too? So rents are going up, but so too are the cost of various other goods, cost of gas, et cetera. So how is that playing out? Yeah, right now we're certainly seeing inflation. Um, so I think in, in the State of the Nation's housing report this year, we talked about the effect of inflation on some of these basic goods, gas, like you mentioned, also energy costs um, with rent rising and how that's really squeezing lower income households in particular and, and lower income renters even more so. One thing that we always look at is how much households have left over after um, paying for housing each month. And it's, it's a very small amount for lower income households. And then when you think about the rest of these costs rising, it just cuts more and more into what households are able to do. You know, looking at you know, rent affordability or rents going up, uh, other cost of living going up, you know, are there some things that, that you're starting to see greater focus on or need for that, that can help address some of those challenges? So like, even if that's going up, you know, some other things that, that can... Uh, bring cost of living down or address related issues that may be helpful even as rent goes up and cost of goods go up? Yeah, I think one of the things we were trying to do with, with this paper was on residual income burdens was to think about what are the different policy levers and do they help make a dent in cost of living? Do they help get more households to meeting sort of this basic but comfortable standard of living? 
and being housers, you know, we think if, if everybody had an affordable, had affordable housing at sort of that standard 30%. Um, so if they're paying no more than 30% of their incomes on housing, which is what a lot of policy aims to do, do we actually make a dent in residual income cost burdens? And we were finding that it, it doesn't change that much. It, it would push about a half a million households into not having residual income burdens so that they'd be meeting that standard of living. Um, and it would reduce the residual burden rate by about two percentage points. So in the grand scheme of things, a universal housing subsidy alone doesn't really move the needle that much. Um, and, and part of that is getting at the fact that everything else is so expensive. So some of the things that we looked at that just kind of reflect some recent policy proposals were things like if you capped affordable housing plus transportation at 45% of income, or if you reduced healthcare costs by half, or um, food costs by half, or if you provided like universal childcare, we sort of tried to simulate what would happen uh, for households. And what we find is that a combined housing and transportation um, subsidy, which would be really complicated to implement, would make the largest difference and bring the residual in income burden rate down by about eight percentage points. So does that suggest that like sort of the second most uh, costly thing is transportation? And, and if you're really focusing on that, you're you're making a big impact? That's correct. Transportation is a chunk. It's a big chunk of income, especially for lower income households that um, they're spending. It's also one that's sort of universally used. So if you think about childcare, that's really only going to benefit people with children. Um, if you think about a healthcare subsidy, that's people who are already paying a lot in, in healthcare bills, right? So transportation is in commuting is one that's sort of a more universal expense that households are paying and it's a large expense. And then paired with housing and, you know, locational choices, those two things together are a big chunk of people's income. Yeah. And, and the other side of that, back back to the, the choice thing, right? It's not always uh, locational choice, but it's locational necessity, right? So exactly. there are a lot of areas that aren't even accessible, as you were saying, Correct. with the desert, yeah. rental deserts. Yeah. And I think one of our big takeaways from this is that um, the cost of living is so high, rent is so high, and incomes are just too low for a lot of households. So we really need to see some kind of combination of policy supports, um, maybe even some kind of you know basic income supports to really address these holistic affordability problems if our goal is to get households to a comfortable standard of living um, where they also have housing stability. Uh, and it's interesting now right, the, the housing part of the story sort of uh, is leading the way maybe uh, maybe for one of the one of the first times in in history, maybe that's too bold a statement, but Right. There's so much attention on the rent being really high and, and uh, housing housing challenges. But as you're saying, it's this it's uh, it's the combination of factors that are really, really coming into play here. I think with COVID, we've also centered housing um, just because it's it's so important to have a stable place right. um, in, in terms of, you know, avoiding <laughs> the risk of getting COVID and, um, you know, we've seen just an unprecedented level of assistance going out to, to keep renters stably housed, especially. Um, and so housing has really been at the forefront, but we certainly, you know, there's so many discussions about inflation. I think everybody understands all the pressures coming from different directions on people right now. I think it's really important findings because I do know, um, as, as Corey said, you kind of like housing kind of pops to the top and it's something that we talk about all the time, but to think that, uh, you know, solving that one great big issue, you know, doesn't completely kind of address things is, is really um, 
concerning. And, and it sounds like, though, that the, as you looked at this, did, did you cut it by income level or socioeconomic status or, or any of those kind of things as you, as you consider those policy options? We were primarily looking at income level and then um, household types. Mm-hmm. And part of that was to see how our estimate of residual income burdens differed from standard cost burden measures, which is a little bit of a, a wonky exercise, right? But um, in part, we were trying to say, if we used just a 30% standard as the cutoff for cost burdens, who are we not seeing that are having affordability issues and are having um, you know, potential problems meeting a basic standard of living and experiencing financial pressure? And so what we were really finding was that the standard cost burden measure is really underestimating the financial pressure on middle-income households and on households with children. That's uh, that that's really important. And uh, you know, some of that work reminds me too of uh, these different policy approaches. You know, during the pandemic and the shutdowns that came as a result of that, and the concern for households, there were you know, I guess in practice, a bunch of different policies. And and then it also, you know, I think there was a concern about the which populations were were more impacted or less impacted, and uh, and certainly renters was high amongst that. Uh, I think um, you, you've also done work uh, in in the actual you know history of that as well, right? Yeah, we've had a series of papers um, that I've co-authored with a few of my colleagues here, and um, that have also been supported through the Housing Crisis Research Collaborative, which is uh, the Joint Center, the Urban Institute, the Furman Center, and the Turner Center. Um, and so we've had colleagues co-authoring on some of these papers as well, but. Um, we're really trying to understand the pandemic's effects on renters in particular, because it was apparent so early on that renters were really hard hit by the financial impacts of the pandemic. And then there were concerns about eviction um, and, you know, building on the instability that renters already faced before the pandemic with affordability challenges. So uh, in our, our first paper was, Uh, early last year, and we were really just trying to get a sense of what the magnitude is because there was so much data coming out and it was hard to assess, you know, what to believe and, you know, how many renters were actually affected. And this was a period when policy was being made and, you know, we're trying to start distributing rental assistance. So part of it was like, how do we get our heads around what is happening and even assess like who's being affected and how many renters and how to target this kind of assistance. So our first paper was uh, kind of a scan of the field, looking at existing surveys and studies just to try to synthesize what information was out there and figure out what we still needed to know. And really from that, we saw that there were pretty wide ranges of estimates on the shares of renters who had lost income or who fell behind on rent. And there wasn't a clear picture um, on the magnitude. And then there was no consistent information about how much income renters were losing or how far behind they were on their rent. So it it was complicated to do. But what did come out pretty unequivocally was that renters were hard hit um, on a large scale and that Black and Hispanic renters in particular were very hard hit by COVID's economic impacts. Um, And the other thing that came out of that was it was showing that households who were affected by these income losses were tapping a really wide range of resources to try to stay up, to to stay current on rent and to make ends meet. So the rent arrears alone 
weren't really giving a full picture of the financial distress that renters were facing early in the pandemic. And then it sounds like you would, you know, if there's a lot of you know, borrowing from from friends and family, then you know the burden faced by by one renter has a sort of extended effect on on uh, those they're borrowing from and, and the broader community. That's right, and that's so. This first paper motivated a, a follow up paper where we actually used household pulse data, which we sort of came down on as the most timely and sort of the best data source to be looking at for some of these questions. And we were, we were trying to look at in that, uh, not just borrowing from friends and family, but other strategies that households were doing to cope with income losses. And that includes things like taking out you know, more loans or using credit cards, more dipping into savings, selling assets, um, and then using some of these policy responses that emerged, like the stimulus checks or um, you know, money that was saved from deferred or forgiven payments, which could fall into the student loan um, deferrals, and then things like unemployment insurance that was expanded during the pandemic. So we were seeing that even though there was a lot of financial distress happening, most renters actually weren't falling behind on rent. So about a quarter who lost income fell behind on rent, but then the, the opposite of that is that 75% were still paying their rent, right, and still making it. Um, and so part of what we were trying to understand was if households are still making rent, are we not capturing some of the distress? Um, and we did find that households were able to keep up on rent because they were using a combination of these resources. Um, about half were using at least one of their personal resources, like tapping into savings. And then they coupled it with some kind of you know, policy-based resource, like unemployment insurance. And so we saw a lot of mixed strategies for trying to stay current on rent. But that also meant that being behind on rent wasn't the only good indicator of how distressed households were or what this could mean for the communities that they were connected to. And then, you know, you mentioned some of the uh, some of the different public programs, public subsidy being helpful. Emergency rental assistance was obviously the highest profile of those uh, through the pandemic. How did you see that get factored in? Yeah, so emergency rental assistance has been an incredible program. Um, I wrote a, a paper earlier this summer that was investigating some of the benefits of emergency rental assistance, again, using the household pulse data. So this was a program where more than $46 billion were going out starting in early 2021, and it's being spent down now, but it's helped millions of households you know, get current on rent payments and prevent evictions. And, and part of it was that we knew that renters were, were tapping all these resources to keep up with their rent and their expenses. And I wanted to examine like how ERA is providing benefits for households who received it. And so not just looking at catching them up on rent, but also some additional indicators of financial well-being and then mental health. So is ERA sort of taking pressure off of these households? And the, the data is good because it has a comparison group of people who received ERA, and then renters who had applied but hadn't yet received a determination. So that allowed me to create sort of a quasi-experimental design that lets me see the effect of the program a little bit more. And from that work, I found that ERA was associated with a large percentage point de decrease in the likelihood of being behind on rent. But then there were all of these other benefits to it too. So those who received ERA were less likely to have difficulty you know, reporting that they were having trouble meeting expenses. They were less likely to tap into their savings or have to borrow from friends and family. And then they also had higher rates of food security and better reported mental health too. 
So we saw smaller effects on some of those other non-housing outcomes, but they were still statistically and practically significant. And you really see that by putting resources towards stabilizing renters, we get all these additional benefits in ways that we relieve pressure on these households. That sounds like a, a really great study. And, and again, um, you, you're doing multiple, multiple things where you're kind of finding um, housing on its own. You know, the, it's a difficult problem to solve and, and uh, it requires multiple solutions. And then it makes sense that at the, at the household level, housing and, uh, and the concern about that affects many parts of their lives. As you think about it, there, it also is, you know, emergency rental assistance and, and the, the issues were, were all around the country. Um, I don't know whether you found anything by differing geographies or, or types of neighborhoods or, or um, anything like that as well. For the ERA paper, um, we, I did not break down uh, geographies, but we do have a forthcoming paper that is sort of a, another in our, our COVID renters series that's through the Housing Crisis Research Collaborative. And that actually uses uh, internal household pulse survey that's geocoded at the neighborhood level. So we can look at the concentration of renters who fell behind on rent in certain types of neighborhoods. And we can also look a little bit from the survey at whether ERA was making it to the types of neighborhoods that were experiencing the most distress. I think this all sort of ties together at this point because we have these spatial patterns of where renters live. We have these spatial patterns of racial and socioeconomic segregation um, that sort of, you know, we talk about in our rental deserts paper. And then because of how the pandemic's impacts were so disparately and unevenly distributed, um, you have a situation where these patterns are shaping where people live and then then concentrating the pandemic's effects. And so in this paper, we've really been trying to explore how the pandemic's effects are, are concentrated in certain types of neighborhoods, like higher poverty neighborhoods and neighborhoods where there are um, higher shares of people of color um, who were, I just want to reiterate that, you know, this is all a product of sort of systemic racism and discrimination that makes households of color vulnerable to the economic impacts of the pandemic that excludes them from certain neighborhoods and creates the conditions under which they're experiencing greater levels of cost burden and housing precarity even before the pandemic. And now we're seeing these sort of neighborhood impacts in these communities. So some initial findings from that paper are that we're seeing that um, the renters behind on rent are very highly concentrated in, in these higher poverty neighborhoods in neighborhoods with a greater share of people of color. But we do see that ERA is generally getting to the types of neighborhoods that were hardest hit. So that kind of, um, you know, there was a lot of attention on, on ERA when it came out, but this sort of longer term view, that, that's really fantastic that you're, that you're digging into that. And, you know, as, as we look ahead, um, you know, what are you focused on? What are you focused on now? What are the questions that you're looking to get into further? Um, I think that one one thing we're really interested in doing is expanding some of the rental deserts work. So we've we've been toying with this idea for a couple of years now and um, have used it in reports. I've used it in this brief blog, but really want to understand this the spatial dynamics of it. I think you've even asked some questions that in in the course of this interview that make me want to investigate some other things um, and and how this overlays onto other you know geographies of opportunity to the different types of rental housing that are available. So I think the, and given all of the, um, you know, movement towards zoning changes and understanding barriers 
to rental housing and to construction right now. I think that's a, a vein of research that we're going to continue to look at um, in the future. We're also, I think, coming out of uh, out of the pandemic. There's a lot of interest. Well, the pandemic is still happening, but coming out of some of the lessons we've learned from the pandemic, um, I, I think there's a, an interest in understanding what different places are doing and how they have, you know, used the ARPA funds, um, the CARES Act money for different affordable housing initiatives and for rental assistance and how to keep that momentum going. And I think that's, that's something that we're interested in, in continuing to track and explore. Um, so th- I think those are two things that, that come to mind directly related to some of the research we've talked about today. Those sound like uh, really interesting projects to work on. And I, and I think that it's, it's no surprise because looking back at the work that you have already done, um, so many things of, of, of interest were, um, were discussed today. So um, always a great pleasure to have you on and a chance to think through and discuss uh, your, your work and, and the, the in-depth uh, things that you get to look at and that we get to um, learn about. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production leads, Jenny Wynn and Raquel Sams, and audio producer, Dalton O'Cola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.